Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. It's the fourth week of the Advent season as displayed by our Advent wreath. It's a season, as we've mentioned over and over again, that launches the global church, the global community of faith into the new year. It means arrival. Advent means arrival or it means coming. And it is a time where we as the people of God look forward to the coming of Christ. Not just in a manger moment, like is so popularized, but also in the second coming as well. In fact, the first two Sundays of Advent are primarily focused on the day of the Lord and his second coming. There's also the third coming of Christ that we've talked about a couple weeks ago. It's Christ coming into our life, the advent or the arrival of Christ into our heart by way of the Spirit. And as mentioned earlier in this teaching series that we've been walking in, the liturgical calendar helps remind us that time is much more circular and cyclical in motion than it is linear. And I truly believe this is one of the reasons why we have seasons, right? You see seasons, leaves come and go, right? There's harvest. There's a season of being barren. Every year, it's circular, And the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, functions in the same way. It's circular in motion rather than linear. It also helps us to be anchored to the story of Jesus. It anchors us to the gospel narrative. And the gospel is the story of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God made flesh, the incarnation. So there's two elements of the calendar. And in this calendar, there are three movements We've mentioned prior, but I want to reiterate it, that rotate through at least twice during the calendar. Those three things are waiting, rejoicing, and manifesting. Three movements that rotate through each other at least twice in the calendar. In Advent, we wait. Christmas tide, we rejoice. In Epiphany tide, we manifest. In Lent, we wait. In Easter, we rejoice. And then in Pentecost, we manifest. We rotate through these movements. And Advent is a season of waiting. I mentioned just a minute ago that it is marked by the 400 years of silence where God did not speak to his people. There's a a space in the middle of your Bible where there is a blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years It's a long time. I'm not talking about five years. I'm not talking about a decade. Some of you are experiencing things in your life, and you're like, it's been a long time. And I have some friends. It took them eight years to graduate from undergrad. It's like, it's been an eternity. Try 400 years. It's a long, long time, let alone the fact that here we are still waiting and longing and yearning for the coming of Christ, and it's been two millennia. It's a season of waiting. Out of Advent, we then move into Christmas tide. Not Christmas Day, Christmas tide. It's a 12-day period of rejoicing. 
That's why we sing the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. That's where it comes from. There are 12 days during the Christmas season. So I beg you, all of you, friends, if you decorate, which how many of you decorated for Christmas? You got some lights up, some garlands, some wreaths, some greenery, something frosty that's being blown up in the front of your yard. It's fine. Keep it up. Keep it up until January the 6th. 12 full days. Go into February for all I care. Keep it up. Don't take it down before the new year, okay? Keep it up through January 6th. Just want you guys to know that. For the four weeks of Advent, we have been sitting in what is commonly known as Mary's Song from Luke chapter 1, or the Magnificat, which means to magnify in Latin. It's also considered to be the overture of Luke's gospel account. It's the overture. Luke launches into this story of Jesus with three different songs, and the first one is the Magnificat, Mary's song from Luke chapter 1. So let's go ahead and jump into Luke 1 now. We're going to read this song from Mary, and it's going to be up on the screen for those of us that do not have a Bible. If you'd like a Bible, we'd love to give you one for free. It reads this, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is the word of the Lord. Wonderful. Last week, I thought Anderson did a fantastic job teaching the scriptures. And I texted him this past week. I said, Anderson, you taught for 27 minutes. You're making me look really bad. Okay? Really, really bad. You're not going to get 27 minutes from me. I'm just going to be honest with y'all. That's just being truthful. Okay? But he helped us ask a very important question. A question that all of us have to ask when we study the scriptures. The question is, what genre am I reading? What genre am I reading? Here's the deal, friends. You cannot always read the scriptures literally. You have to read them literarily. You have to know what genre am I reading. We must always know the type of literature we are reading to help us understand what is referred to as authorial intent. What is the intent of the writer? And, and so, for instance, when we read poetry, but we're expecting history, we begin to take things in a direction they weren't meant to go in the first place. Or when we read a narrative and we're expecting it to be apocalyptic or expecting it to be law, we take it in a different direction. And Mary's Magnificat is a song or a psalm situated within the narrative that Luke is presenting. And, and Luke's gospel account is biography in its nature. It's biography in its nature, specifically about the person of Jesus. 
Jesus is the focal point of Luke in his writing. And you see that revealed in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Keep in mind, too, that Luke's gospel account and Acts are essentially a two-part series. It's the same narrative, it's the same writer in two separate parts. And in Acts chapter 1, verses 1, it reads this. In my former book, Luke's gospel account, Theophilus, which is a fantastic name. I mean, if I have a son, we might have to go with Theophilus. That's incredible, okay? <laughs> Theophilus. I wrote about, key word, I wrote about, a key phrase, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So what does that tell us? That tells us that Luke's gospel account is all about what Jesus did and taught. And this is important because Mary's song must be read in context and conjunction with the greater life, ministry, and work of Jesus. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been necessary for Luke to add it in as part of his quote-unquote orderly account. If you read the first couple verses of Luke 1, it talks about how he is giving an orderly account of what took place to most excellent Theophilus. Keep in mind, too, Luke is a Gentile. Theophilus is also a Gentile who more than likely is a part of the Roman elite or the aristocracy. That's why he's referred to as most excellent. If someone came up to you and said, most excellent, Corey, or most excellent, Cody, or most excellent, Isabel, that's impressive. Like, come on, all right? Most excellent, Theophilus. And so he is specifically focusing on Jesus. And so when we read Mary's song, we have to keep that in mind, all right? He wouldn't have added it in in for any other reason other than for it to point to what he is getting after, let alone this overture, this, this beginning song that sets the tone for the whole gospel account. The gospel isn't about Mary, it's about Jesus. And Mary's song is adding to that direction. And one of the foreshadowing implications of this song, or this psalm, as noted in the text last week that Anderson referenced, as well as the text this week that we'll get into, is that what Jesus is coming to do and what Jesus came to do is and was ultimately to flip or to reverse the whole economy and structure of the world upside down and in a way that leads to salvation and redemption. And some scholars might argue he didn't flip it upside down. He actually flipped it right side up the way it was meant to be. But as you can tell, when you read Mary, she is also tying it in to the story of God through the life of Israel that's all throughout the Old Testament. The gospel for Mary, who is a Jewish girl, requires understanding the story of Israel, requires it. She is bridging the story of Israel with this new covenantal moment with Jesus. She's connecting the two. They're not necessarily separate. They are connected. And without being a, a biblical scholar, you might miss this. But Mary, for whatever reason, we don't know how, is highly educated somehow in the Hebrew scriptures. She's very educated. She's very aware of the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures. Some scholars seem to think there are at least 12 Old Testament references in this song alone. 
She knows the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, there is uh, what in, in the literary world is referred to as an allusion. There is an allusion to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So if you go read Hannah's song from 1 Samuel, you will see it sounds a lot like the Magnificat. Sounds a lot like Mary's song. This is an illusion. It's parallel. They're very similar. Even the language is very similar. They almost go hand in hand. On top of that, there are 10 specific references to the Psalms. 10 specific references to the Psalms. So Mary must enjoy music. Mary likes to sing. Mary's an artist, I think, at heart. She's a creative. She knows lyrics. And she's pulling from the Psalms. She's pulling from all these songs into this one dynamic, rich, deep, theological few verses that are connected to the gospel of Jesus. Do you see that? Today, as we close this song, I want to specifically zoom into verse 53. So we're going to sit in verse 53 for today. But as we read this verse, keep Jesus in mind. When you read the gospel account, always keep Jesus in mind. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Verse 53 in this passage is cross-referenced with Psalm 107.9. We're doing some biblical studies this morning, okay? It is cross, somebody got excited. <laughs> it is cross-referenced with Psalm 107, 9, which says this, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. It's almost verbatim, is it not? Almost verbatim. So before we move further, notice in the text the reversal taking place. The contrast between the hungry and the rich. Or in verse 52, Anderson referenced last week, it was the humble and then the rulers. There is this flip and reversal taking place. You know, the only type of person that the scriptures say God opposes is the proud. God is for you. He's not against you. But if you're proud and arrogant and full of yourself, he will oppose you. And I do not want to be opposed by the creator of the world. So if you have any pride and arrogance in your heart or vain conceit, he is against you, my friend. We see this, this flip of the humble and the, the rulers or the, the hungry and the rich. So Psalm 107, verse 9, though, speaks in the present tense. It says, for he satisfies. But Mary is speaking in the past tense, right? He has. She uses this constantly in the, in the text. He has, he has, he has. So when we read, he has filled the hungry, we assume that has happened in history and has been completed in the past. We assume that. So then we have to ask, what in this world does this passage have to do with Jesus, who hasn't even come yet, but it's situated in Luke's gospel account? It's all about Jesus. Here's what's crazy. He has, we're going to get deep in, in, this, in this morning, okay? Is that okay? 
We're going to get deep into the text. He has, in the Greek, is in what is referred to as the aorist active indicative. Okay? The aorist active indicative. And it refers to a past event or a type of action in the past. But there is no set chronological end to the statement. You could say something like, he has walked. Okay, but did he stop walking? There is no set chronological end. It is more connected to the kind of event than the duration of an event in the past. Tracking with me? All my biblical scholars in the room. It isn't about timing, but it's about the kind of action. The action is indicating something. All right? The aorist indicative is more of a summary of what has happened. It's a summary of what has happened. And so when we read he has, it is a statement of the past that has future implications. It is a statement of history that has future implications. It does not say he had filled. It said he has filled. It doesn't say he had helped. It says he has helped, meaning that, and this is where we get hope, joy, peace, excitement, and a thrill by what she's saying. Because he has, very well means he still is and will continue to. This is a sign of Mary's hope. It's a sign of Mary's sense of expectation. Because he has. He more than likely will. If he has, he more than likely will. If he has treated you like crap, he is probably going to treat you like crap. If she has been good to you, she probably will be good to you. Why? Because past behavior oftentimes is the best indicator of future behavior. And because God has filled the hungry, he probably is feeding the hungry, and he will continue to feed the hungry. We don't just read and go, that's something he did in the past, it's done. No, 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 no. It's just indicating what he has begun and started. We don't know when it's ended. God's past behaviors are indicative of his present and future behaviors. And sure enough, <laughs> you like that? That's a rapper giggle. You ever heard a rapper giggle? <laughs> or a charismatic giggle, whatever, if you're Kim Walker Smith. <laughs> In the Beatitudes, Jess is shaking her head, oh no. How do we go from talking about the aorist indicative to talking about a rapper giggle? That's the beauty of our gathering. I love this. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? Filled. Sounds like Mary. John 6, 35, here again, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There is a connection point to the Magnificat in the teachings of Jesus, especially in the Beatitudes. 
The hunger, though, that Mary is talking about, and Jesus as well in the original language, certainly contains a literal sense. But most importantly, because, again, it is in conjunction with the life and teachings and work of Jesus, it has an even more spiritual significance to it, a spiritual sense of the idea. The word hungry here in the Greek is the word pineo, okay? P-E-I-N-A-O. And it can mean to crave, to seek with eager desire, to want, to yearn, to long, or to starve. And is it not interesting that Advent is all about hunger? It is all about longing. It is all about starving and craving the coming of Christ Jesus. And she specifically says that he has filled the hungry with good things. A couple of things happen when we get hungry. Some of you guys experience being hangry, if you know what I'm talking about. When you get hungry, you get attitude. You don't give me food now, I will cut you, okay? Right? Some of you are married to, to some, some wives like that. Some of you married to husbands like that. Some of you got friends like that, you know? Having a pregnant wife who's hungry, hello? Right? You get hangry, okay? There's two important parts of the body that seem to have a heightened level of engagement when you become hungry. Some might argue the most important is your stomach, right? Your stomach gets hungry. However, some psychologists argue that the most important part of your body when you become hungry is your brain. It's your mind. Your brain has a region called the hypothalamus. And it functions a bit like command central or control monitor on all aspects of various systems in your body. You might call it a thermostat of sort for the systems of your body. So your stomach, when you get hungry, tells your brain, hello, I need some food, like now. And then your brain tells you, hello, you're hungry, you need food. Stomach, just send a little note to me, and it's telling me that we got to eat. That's kind of what's happening when you become hungry. So why is this important in looking at the idea of being hungry? Because many of our minds and our brains are distracted, distorted, and glitched and need to be renewed in order to even recognize our true hunger. For a lot of us in this room, our spiritual life is absolutely starved. Starved. You're starving. Your soul is empty. But our brain is looking back and saying, not right now. I'm busy. And then what happens when we get hungry? We get a headache. <laughs> you ever been so hungry you get a headache? Yeah. Your brain's like, uh -uh, I ain't, I ain't, I'm not making this happen. Like, no, no, no. And you're like, I'm not eating, I'm not eating. A lot of us, our minds are distracted on other things that we can't even recognize that our stomach is saying, hello, feed me. Feed me. So we have to, as the people of God, especially in the Advent season, dear, please, friends, 
assess our spiritual hunger and focus our mind on what's actually happening internally. One of the great challenges, I think, for many of us who live busy and chaotic and constant lives is we are not aware. We're not aware of the reality that our stomach or the soul of our stomach is starving. And we are hungry, so we have to assess our level of spiritual hunger. The other tragedy is that when we do recognize our soul's hunger, often, what do we do? We lower our standard for what we are putting into our bodies. Just watch one season of Alone on Netflix. Out in the wilderness, there's nothing. You can't catch anything for days. They start eating some funky stuff. Why? They're starving. How many times have you been just like, I'm so hungry, I'm just going to whip it into McDonald's real quick. You know? Throw a dollar cheeseburger down. (laughs) I'm starving. We lower our standard of expectation. It's so fascinating because eating junk constantly takes a toll on your body. And I like eating junk food. I'll be honest. Little Debbie? That's my girl. (laughs) Hello? Oatmeal cream pies, Swiss cake rolls, Christmas tree cakes, like you name it, honey. I will eat it. But if that is your entire diet, you will feel terrible and it will not be good for you. Mary is very clear in saying he has filled the hungry with what? Good things. Not crap. Not fast food. Not a gas station taquito for one dollar. And the joints look nasty. On the little rolly thing, you know? Some of y'all are like, I had one yesterday. <laughs> he has filled the hungry with good things. In other words, he's filled the hungry with sustenance. He's filled the hungry with fullness. He's, fi- he's filled the hungry with nourishment. And because he's still doing it, he will fill the hungry with nourishment. He will fill the hungry with sustenance. He will fill the hungry with fullness. John Tyson says this, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. I love that. The great enemy for us is not poison going into our body. It's things that honestly taste good but we replace them with the things that are meant to keep us alive. And it starves us because we eat a little Debbie cake for an entree, and that's not how it's meant to be. And one of the areas, let me be transparent. One of the main areas that this gets so distorted is sex. When you take a fire that is good, and you put it out, pull it out of a fireplace and put it into a room, things catch on fire. Why? It has a designed space. And if anyone in this room is experiencing, first of all, the shame of past experiences or present experiences to the point where you're in denial of reality, I want you to experience freedom in Christ Jesus. You are not your behavior. You are not your action. You are loved. You are valued. You are good. But God looks at you and says, 
that is not who you are. And that's not how I designed it. That's why it's eating away at your soul. Did you, re- did you know, in, neurologically, we have a, a protein that's a, called the vasopressin in our brain that releases every time we have sexual intercourse, which, by the way, sex is not a verb, okay? I just want you guys to know that. Historically, it's not, all right? Vasopressin releases, and the more we have it with multiple people, it attaches itself to a single person. The more we have it, the more it diminishes to a point where it actually will be eradicated from our brain. Our own neurobiology is wired for fidelity. That is neuroscience, and it aligns with the teachings of Jesus. But when we eat junk, we feel like crap. When we live like crap, we feel like crap. When we do things that aren't the way God intended for us to, to do, it will impact our own sense of self and who we are. I've sat with too many people who have had no set of boundaries in their life, and they're miserable, they're broken, they're full of shame. They cry, they're upset. Now in our world, sex has become a recreational activity and transaction, and that's not how it was meant to be. Sit with someone who's had sex constantly. They're broken people. And some of us have experienced that brokenness, and we can testify to that. But we fill our bodies with things that aren't good or we put things in our body that aren't meant to go in that place at that time, it will impact us. God has a design for human flourishing. And here's the other thing. Some of us grew up in purity culture, which must be rejected as well. Sex is beautiful. It is good. The body is good. It really is. But it has a design. All right? Fire is not bad, but it has a purpose. Fire can warm a home, but it can also burn a forest. Keep that in mind. That's why so often we hear about, or we talk about holiness in the New Testament. It's always followed by sexual immorality. Always. Keep that in mind. And we want to create a space for you to be honest and transparent. And I'll be honest, a lot of us are not very honest. We're not very transparent. Or we let it slip because they're our friend. Way to go. That's awesome. But honey, it's not. Let's be real. Let's be real. Look at the data. Okay? So, I'm off my soapbox. The greatest enemy of, by the way, in the new year, we're going to do some teaching around human sexuality. So, get prepared. It's going to be great. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. When Mary uses this word filled, it can also be translated as satisfied. Right? Jesus, friends, is the ultimate satisfaction. He is the ultimate satisfaction. Not a job, not money, not a relationship, certainly not sex, not looks, not status. It's Jesus that is the ultimate satisfaction. St. Augustine, the uh, North African theologian from around the the 3rd, 4th century, says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you or until it rests in you. You will be utterly restless until your heart finds rest in God. Jesus fills the hungry with good things, with good food. But many of us, we're not hungry because our stomach hurts from all the junk. 
I mean, some of us are eating junk and we're not hungry. Why? Because we're eating, we've been eating crap. We feel like crap. God's like, that's not what I want for you. I want you to experience life. But you know what I've noticed? I've noticed this. Good food costs. You ever been to Fresh Market? <laughs> All of a sudden you get like two things, that's going to be $37.63. What? Like I got a pie and some Parmesan cheese. Like why is this $37? Good food costs. Growing a garden costs. Ask Cody Thompson. That takes work. It costs. Maybe you should ask Angie. I don't know which one you should ask. Hunting in the wild costs. And being a student of Jesus costs. It costs him and it will cost us to surrender ourselves to him. And in return, we experience abundant life. Here's the final challenge and the struggle for many of us. Some of us in this room aren't hungry because we haven't exercised much faith. Did you catch that? Some of us aren't hungry because we don't exercise. You haven't burned any faith calories. <laughs> Sitting idle doesn't make you hungry. Languishing doesn't produce longing. Sitting still does not make you hungry. You have to exercise faith and trust in order to experience hunger. And if you aren't in prayer, friends, you will risk idle spirituality. Why? Because prayer increases our hunger. It increases our hunger. I love this quote from Christine Kane, which, by the way, she is probably one of the top five best preachers in the world right now. Just, I want you guys to be aware. That's my opinion, but I just think so. As we spend time with God, he changes us. He grows us. He grows our desire for more of him. He grows our hunger and thirst. The more you're with him, the more you want him. He grows our hunger. And Mary in this passage is revealing her own sense of hunger. He has filled the hungry. She is revealing, I believe, her own hunger for God, as well as the hunger of Israel. And Luke is revealing the hunger of the world, who is a Gentile doctor or historian. Luke is revealing the hunger of the world. He's writing to most excellent Theophilus, again, a Gentile elite who was part of the Roman aristocracy. He was the rich. He was the wealthy. He had the status. But there's a deep sense of hunger that's still there. It's more than likely he's a recent convert. If you go read the end of Acts, you start to see a lot of wealthy Gentiles start to follow the way of Jesus. She's revealing the hunger for herself, the hunger of Israel, and Luke is revealing the hunger of the world, including Gentile elites. And the advent of Jesus, him actually coming into this world, reveals and uncovers the hunger of the world. The hunger of the poor and oppressed, as well as the hunger of the elite and powerful. The hunger for true hope, true joy, true peace, and true love. I want to close with this. The verse that stood out to me in this entire passage more than any other verse is actually verse 56, where it says, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. It's not even a part of the song, but it's in there specifically. 
And no one has any idea why Mary stays. The only thing we do know is that she stays through the birth of John the Baptist to be with Elizabeth. But I can't help but notice that the Greek for stayed can also mean to wait for. And one of the great difficulties facing us in the modern world is our inability to wait, our inability to be patient. Again, we jump to junk. Wait for the good thing. Wait for the good thing. Again, what do you do at a good restaurant? You got to wait. Got an open table on uh, Friday to try to find a place to eat Friday afternoon. And there was hardly anything available. But if I went to Wendy's, a piece of cake, right? You got to wait at a good restaurant. You got to wait for good food. And she is saying that she waited for three months with Elizabeth. Howard Thurman says, it is in the waiting, the brooding, lingering, tarrying, timeless moments that the essence of the religious experience becomes most fruitful. We must learn how to wait. So what do we do in the waiting? It's not just a passive act. In the waiting, we prepare. In the waiting, we prepare. There's a dual meaning for this Greek word, which is meno, And it, in fact, is one of Jesus' favorite words, which gets translated as abide, to be present to and to be present with. In the waiting, we must be present to God. In this Advent season, we must be present to God. In the waiting of his second coming, we must be present to God and be willing to wait for the good thing because he will fill the hungry And I want you to look at yourself and ask yourself, am I hungry? Because guess what? Hunger is a part of survival. Not just a fun, good life. Survival. We must know how to wait. I close with 1 John 4, verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives or whoever abides in love lives in God and God in them. As we've lit the fourth candle of love today, the call is to abide and to dwell and to be present in love. God desires for you to become more aware of your level of hunger, your level of desire. I'm excited because in the new year, we're going to do a teaching series around what it means to be human and looking at desires. And again, one of the other challenges, the conversation around recreational, transactional sex and hookup culture is we somehow think that the desires and urges that we have can't be met by God. That's false. Those desires are from God. The erotic nature of sex can be met and matched by the presence of God. And I guarantee you, no one has ever told you that before. But it can be. It can be. Jesus comes and lives the life of a celibate man who is in deep 
union and intimacy with God and is providing for us the ultimate human experience in deep and utter fullness. And you can experience that same fullness as well. But you have to redirect your mind to know, am I hungry for God? And if I am, am I filling it with God or am I filling it with something else? Let's pray together.